Father, we pray that you will indeed live in our minds and through what you speak to us about in our minds that it would penetrate every part of our being. We pray that your word will once again come alive for us and give us an openness to hear what you have to say. Through Christ Jesus we pray, amen. Please be seated. How important is corporate worship to you? On a scale of 1 to 10, um, how valuable is corporate worship and how significant and essential is corporate worship to your life? I assume because you're here today that it has some significance to your life, but um, how much? How committed are you to meeting regularly with other Christians? You know, people have different opinions about corporate worship. When um, I went away to college as a freshman, I decided that the uh, first 18 years of my life, I'd had enough experience and time going to church that I could probably do it without it for a while. And uh, there was some time where I did. And um, I just felt like uh, it was probably in some way a sense of rebellion. In other ways, it just seemed like it wasn't all that important. And what changed my opinion about it was that I suddenly began to take the scriptures seriously. And what it says to us about corporate worship. And I have come to a completely different mindset since then. In the passage of scripture that we read here in Leviticus 23, the Israelites are in the wilderness preparing to cross the Jordan River to to go into the land that God has promised to them. And as they wait, God through Moses is, is telling them all the things that they need to know about how to live in this, when they settle in that land. And the section of instructions that we call Leviticus is basically all about worship. And God tells them how to worship and when to worship and and where to worship and why to worship. And chapter 23 begins with these words. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed feasts. The appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. And he goes on to speak to them about Sabbath worship and about Passover. He speaks to them about about bringing in a portion of the first year's crop as a part of their worship, about commemorating their lives in, in the wilderness. And eventually the chapter moves to the high and holy day of atonement. Entire chapter and even and those that are before it and all, and all the stuff that's after it is designed to teach the Israelites when and where and how to worship. Because that's the heart of their lives as children of God. And it seems to me that these festivals are in some ways a microcosm of worship in general. That worship is is simply a response to all that God has done for us. When you read through these details and when you read through all Leviticus for that matter, it's pretty clear that worship is all about God. 
Worship is responding to all that God has done and provided. Worship helps them remember that all they have is because God has given it. And that's why we worship too. When people declare that they don't need to engage in corporate worship to be a follower of Christ, I remind them that, yes, we do. If for no other reason than to be regularly reminded of all that God has done for us. We need corporate worship because we so easily forget that all we have is a gift from God. That our talents and abilities are gifts of God. That our jobs are gifts of God. Our our, our family and friends are gifts of God. Our spiritual history and our spiritual uh, influences are gifts of God. That anything we accomplish is because God has helped us. Our very lives we owe to God. And we need regular corporate worship because we have such short memories about God and all that we owe him. And coming together in worship brings us face to face with the truth. That life is not primarily about me, it's about God. Corporate worship, a time where really we don't control what happens. It's essential because we are forced to hear and see and experience the truth that God is great and we are not. That God gives gifts and we simply receive them. That if God were to withdraw his blessings, we would have nothing. One of the great lies of the evil one is to say to us about our spiritual condition, you did it. Your hard work made that possible. You can accomplish anything spiritually. You are the most important being in the world. You're just fine on your own. And because we kind of like to hear that, we're susceptible to believing it. Particularly as we live in a world in which we are bombarded with messages that we are easily tempted to believe that all of life is really about me. What I want, when I want it, how I want it, where I want it. And worship together reminds us of the truth. And this is why God's people have always been called to worship. To come, to be reminded together that we are nothing without God. But as essential as corporate worship is, worship is more than what we do here. What we do here, our songs, our prayers, our our fellowship, our words, our readings of scripture, our, our practice of the sacraments. All of these things are essential to our lives in Christ. But this is not the end of worship. In fact, what we do here is really not the true meaning of worship. Something that Leviticus 23 reminds us of. A few months ago, I was reading through Leviticus. And and you might be thinking, why? (laughs) Why would you read through Leviticus? Who reads through Leviticus? Unless you're reading through the whole Bible in a year, right? And you feel really obligated. I've got to make the check marks and make sure I read it all. Most people don't read through Leviticus, which is unfortunate because it is a powerful, powerful uh, book of learning about what it means to follow God. But I was reading through Leviticus and I, and I came to chapter 23 and I was reading about these feasts and about the Israelites worshiping and all of a sudden I, I stopped. And it, it was one of those wait a minute moments. 
It struck me as so odd that right here in the middle of all this talk about feasts and festivals and worship is a verse that appears completely out of place, disconnected, unrelated to everything else before it and after it. Paragraph after paragraph is about worship and then right in the middle of it you have verse 22. And God is in essence saying, oh by the way, when you reap your fields at the harvest... Don't glean to the very edges of your field and leave some of it in the field for the needy among you. Now about the Feast of Trumpets, here's what I want to tell you about that. And he moves on. And I, and I read that and I went back and I read it again and I thought, this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit. This is, he's talking about worship and here he's talking about how they're to glean their fields. And I wanted to think at first that it was a coincidence. Maybe it, maybe it was a mistake. Maybe it got put somewhere in the wrong place. And, and I realized there's nothing coincidence or mistake about Scripture. And then I was reminded that once again, that God is not just concerned about what the Israelites do with the harvest. He is just as concerned about how they reap the harvest. Worship is not just about what we do or how we do it here. Worship is also about what what it does to us and and how it changes our lives when we go out from this place. And I sat and I thought to myself, what does worship do to me? It's not a coincidence that this admonition about gleaning is right in the middle of regulations about worship. It's where it should be because it's simply another means of expressing what God says from the beginning of Scripture to the very end, that worship is never an end in itself. Worship is about turning our attention fully to God so that he can transform us. And one significant indicator that his work is taking root in us is how we respond to people in need. Old Testament law is written and the Israelites live in a culture that is really very, has very little concern for the needy and the vulnerable people. Foreigners are slaves, you can treat them any way you want to. People who are weak are disregarded at best and, and often trampled and used. But here we see one more instance in which God's character and therefore his demands upon his people is diametrically opposed and opposite to the culture. God commands the Israelites to pay attention to those for whom life has taken a difficult turn. Because as God reminds the Israelites over and over again, don't forget you were slaves in Egypt too. And I rescued you. And the only reason you're standing on the banks of the Jordan River right now is because I did this for you. And it leads us right back to worship. Because I I am convinced that we are much more apt to care about people in need when we remember and acknowledge the needs of our own lives and the reality that we have nothing without God's help. In worship, we come together to be reminded of where we've been. That we were lost and yearning and enslaved to sin. And then we're reminded about what God has done about it all. 
And corporate worship puts the ugliness of our sin before us and the pain of our slavery to sin before us and the emptiness of life on our own before us. And then we're reminded of God's plan of redemption for rescuing us and transforming us and redeeming us. And that's true worship. And we need that kind of worship in order to make us more sensitive to people in need because we have such short memories. And short memories about our own struggles makes us impatient and apathetic toward others and their struggles. And when we disregard the needs of other people, it's not just a poorer form of Christianity. It's an indictment on our worship and ultimately on our relationship with God. And so James writes to the church, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but you do nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And I think we could say and worship if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Now we need to understand that God is calling us to a life of of caring for the needy as not just some kind of periodic assistance when we might feel like it. This is a lifestyle choice around which we design our lives. And it involves our finances and our possessions, our time, our energy, our talents, our abilities. To think about how we can practically help needy, vulnerable people. You notice God says, when you harvest. It's not something that they do when they think about it. It's something they do every time they go out into the field. Every time they put their sickle to the grain. Every time they bundle up the stalks. Every time they carry them to the barn. They're to think about the people who are needy and they leave grain for them. And it isn't some kind of inadvertent leaving of grain. He says, make sure you're intentional about it. It isn't something you do if you happen to drop a little bit on your, as you're walking to the barn. Or maybe you leave some because you just didn't have enough time to get all the way to the edge of your field. It's something you plan to do. It's an intentional act of generosity, and it's not a suggestion, it's a command. Being generous toward people in need is not just a good idea, it's an essential element of a godly life. As individuals, as a couple or a family, as a church, we are called to live as generous people. I often tell couples when we're going through premarital counseling that one of the most significant things they can do is to create an atmosphere as a couple of being known, a reputation of being known as as generous people. We're attracted to generous people. We like being around generous people. But being generous is not without its difficulties and sacrifices. Generous people tend to get taken advantage of. Generous people tend to be bombarded with more and more opportunities to be generous. Generous people don't tend to have as much as stingy people. 
Which is why this has to be a conscious decision that we make until it ultimately becomes a sort of default, natural way of living. Now, I think it's important to notice that God doesn't tell the farmer to leave everything in his field for the needy. He doesn't even ask the farmer to leave most of his crop for the needy. He just says, leave some of it. Don't be so greedy that you get up, you pick up every single piece. Leave it for people who don't have anything. Make sure that when you're done, you can say with all honesty, I've been generous toward people who have needs. What a farmer does with the grain on the edge of his field and what a farmer does with the grain that gets dropped along the way as it's transported to the barn, what a farmer does with that stuff is the difference between godly generosity and wicked stinginess. And ultimately, it's going to lead us to a decision about whether or not we trust God. That if we are generous people with what we have, do we trust God to believe that he's going to supply the need that might be created because we left some in the field? You know, in a strictly agrarian society, everything rests on the yield of the harvest of the crop. And there's so many things that can weigh into whether that crop is going to be bountiful or, or not. The weather, in their culture, invaders, animals, disease. There are all kinds of things that can, that can destroy their crop. And so when you get a good crop, you want to get as much of it as you possibly can. Because it's got to tide you over until the next time you, you get another harvest. So you get it all. And so if you think of, of leaving some of, the, of it for others, it doesn't make any sense. It's a significant risk to leave some in the field. And our generosity might not be related to crops, but our generosity is still going to be a risk. What if we give to others and then all of a sudden things come around and, and we, need that, we need that money back or we need that possession back? What if we give to others and then, and then our life gets turned upside down and, and we're left needing what we gave away? You think particularly in these uncertain economic times, I mean, when jobs and and finances seem so tenuous, isn't it wiser to hold on to everything you have, to hold on to everything you possibly can? And the natural answer to that is yes. But God is continually calling us to a life that is unnatural, supernatural, to trust him. Do we believe that God is faithful only when the economy is strong? Or do we trust God despite the economic indicators? Do we trust God only when we feel like we have things under control? Or do we trust at all times? Even the times that might cause us to worry and fret and wonder about the future or wonder about the present. God's strategy hasn't changed through the years. He's still calling his people to trust him enough to be generous with what we have. Whether that would be our resources or our time or our energy. 
or our gifts and abilities. And one of the great spiritual principles is that generosity is directly connected to worship. If we are worshiping with all of our heart, I think we will be generous people. But if we're not worshiping with all of our hearts, we will tend to be stingy people. And so what we do and how we react to needy people as they come into our lives is an indicator of what's really going on in our hearts when we come to worship. As you read through the the, the book of Leviticus and throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, you get a sense that, that God is concerned about this because his character and his reputation are on the line here. And you can almost sense him saying, look, you do this because this is what I do all the time with you and with other people, and you guys represent me. And I want people to know that I am a generous God, that I love giving good gifts to my children. Generosity is at the heart of my nature. This is how I want to be known. This is who I am. It's what I did for you. And I want you to go and to help people understand that through how you treat them. And this is the call of the God who gave his one and only son to redeem us. And he's calling us who represent him to help people understand the kind of generous, amazingly generous God that he is. God is not telling us that generosity is a substitute for worship. But he is telling us that generosity is one of the significant markers of those who are genuinely engaging in corporate worship. This story that we read from Luke's gospel is intriguing to me. You know, Jesus comes to the synagogue on the Sabbath and, and he encounters a woman who has been for years bent over, stooped in pain. And he feels such compassion for her that he heals her. And you, it's hard to even imagine the, the kind of, of elation that must be taking place in the synagogue as this woman that all these people have seen and known for years is now able to stand upright and is healed. I mean, there's got to be shouting and singing and rejoicing in that moment because of what Jesus does. It's one of those God moment miracles in worship. And everyone is elated. Well, almost everyone. Luke tells us that the synagogue ruler is not elated. He is irate. He is irate with Jesus. Because Jesus does something for this woman at a time when they ought to be worshiping. And you you get a sense when you read that, that this synagogue ruler understands worship and compassion as completely separate entities. But when you see Jesus, you see them naturally flowing together. In fact, I think Jesus would say, you can't disconnect them. Because if you're really worshiping, you want to be generous and compassionate toward people in need. 
It's the most natural response in the world of people who are truly engaging God in worship. I got to tell you, that story frightens me a little bit. Because I suspect that somewhere in the deepest recesses of my heart and maybe your heart, we have a tendency to believe the same lie that the synagogue ruler believes. We have a tendency to fall into the same trap that he has fallen into. We have a tendency to believe that worship is one thing and generosity and compassion toward people in need is something else entirely. And that's why we need passages like Leviticus 23 to bring us back to reality and to convict us of that warped, unbiblical perspective. So what do we do about this? I suspect that most of us will, might need to make some lifestyle choices so that we're more available to people who are in need. I suspect that we might need to see worship in, in a little different light than we typically do. Coming to worship and thinking more about our worship changing how we live than about thinking of worship as just making us feel satisfied while we're here. Because here's the truth that honestly I think most of us would like to avoid. Worship is not about us, it's about God. And it's about God working in us to then lead us out to be people of compassion and generosity toward those God brings into our lives who are in need. It's really one of the most natural responses to remembering how gracious and generous and compassionate God has been with us. I've been trying to imagine what it would be like if, if we together as a congregation began to see worship and generosity in this light of what it might do, not just to to us as we come to worship, as I think amazing as that change would be, but, but what it would do for our witness as a congregation to the people all around us that we encounter who are in need. What would it do to, to our reputation? And even more importantly, what would it do to give people a new vision of who God is. My prayer is that God will begin moving us in that direction. Just take, taking little steps of compassion and generosity because we have encountered God here and he has changed us and worked in us and we go to to live and to care about people who are in need. Gracious Father, help us. Help us. Help us to to come and to see and to experience worship 
as so much about you that you're able to work in us and in that transformation to lead us individually and corporately to lives of generosity and compassion and graciousness to people in need. Father, we pray that it would begin today. And we ask it trusting and believing through Christ. Amen.